you're listening to the TB Pod, a podcast for clinicians and policymakers caring for patients with tuberculosis. In these podcasts, we chat with expert clinicians, researchers, policymakers, and advocates about their work in the field of tuberculosis. The TB Pod is prepared by the Australasian Clinical TB Network, ACTNET, and the TB Forum. You can subscribe on iTunes or download episodes through the ACTNET website. This is James Trower. Um, I'm a respiratory physician and epidemiological modeler at Monash University in Victoria. I'm interviewing uh, Professor Ben Murray from the Marie Bashir Institute in Sydney about paediatric TB. Um, I'm, a, I'm an adult respiratory physician. I've been practicing in TB for a number of years, so this is going to be very enlightening for me. I know that paediatric TB is a very difficult area. It's something that I've never really felt like I've got a really good handle on, so I'm really looking forward to finding out some insights from Ben and understanding better exactly what it's like for a paediatric TB clinician at the coalface of treating children with this, uh, with this very nasty disease. Um, so, Ben, I guess as an adult physician, uh, probably diagnosis of paediatric TB is one of the most difficult things in my mind. Um, how do you address that as a paediatric uh, physician? Um, yes, James, I, I must admit there's no easy answers in many instances, but um, I must emphasize that in the vast majority of instances, we can make a fairly accurate diagnosis in children, despite the challenges that we have. Um, obviously, we are fortunate in a place like Australia that we've got you know, access to, to good methods um, and can, can get samples that are more problematic to collect in other parts of the world, and especially in resource-limited settings. Um, so just to mention some of the new tools that people may already be familiar with, but that's good to know. Um, in the last year or two, we've had widespread rollout of the new Expert Ultra, which um, is an enhanced um, Expert PCR test uh, with increased sensitivity um, that has shown to be uh, particularly valuable in children and even in extra pulmonary disease, especially things like TB meningitis. And multiple samples can be tested by ULTRA. Um, respiratory samples, which um, people may not be familiar, but children under seven to eight years of age normally cannot produce a sputum specimen. They reflexively swallow um, their respiratory secretions. So if we want to get a respiratory specimen, we need to either collect a gastric aspirate or a nasopharyngeal aspirate. Um, and those can be tested by Expert Ultra. Um, but an interesting um, additional specimen that's available and that's essentially a respiratory specimen in children is, is stool. And there's now good protocols for performing expert on stool with yields that are lower but broadly comparable to what we see in other respiratory specimens. Um, the expert yield on the whole is, um, and the ultra yield is um, better than what we've had with any previous PCR tests, but it's still um, only around 70% or so of culture-confirmed cases that we can detect by expert. And even culture confirmation is not always as 
um, sensitive as we would hope. Um, other innovative new tests that's available are the urinary lamb. Um, urine lamb tests were first advised for use in um, immune compromised HIV infected adults, um, where the, the older lamb test, the ALEA test, have shown good sensitivity and reasonable specificity, or I should say good specificity and reasonable sensitivity. Um, but in children, the big problem has mm -hmm. been poor sensitivity and poor specificity. So there's a new Fuji Ultra um, Lamb test that has just been developed. Uh, it's the first um, data is now coming forward. And the greatest advantage of the Fuji Lamb test, which um, uses um, optimized antibodies for antigen detection is that the specificity is greatly increased um, with a slight increase in sensitivity. And there, there is some data out to show that the Fujiland test is now uh, a valuable test and I've got reasonable sensitivity in HIV infected children, irrespective of their immune status. Um, and uh, may also serve a function in incompetent children. So that's just the new things on the horizon, which I think are um, deployable in resource limited settings. In most parts of the world, we are still dependent on uh, using just a basic um, logical approach, which includes careful history taking for TB exposure, um, looking at tests for infection like the IGRA or the TST, and combining that with symptoms and signs. And I should just say, signs in young children is usually completely useless. Um, the only signs that are of value <laughs> would be a visible cervical node or large lymph node complexes or signs of meningitis. Um, in most instances, children with intrathoracic or pulmonary disease have got no symptoms that you can detect with your stethoscope or signs that you can detect with your stethoscope. A chest X-ray has value. There's, it's obviously a subjective test, uh, but that's probably the most informative test in most instances. The big problem is that in many parts of the world, um, access to a, a quality X-ray is difficult. Um, it's often not covered by the TB program. TB program provides sputum smear microscopy for free, but in most parts of the world, an X-ray is not provided for free, which is right. a huge discrimination against children right. uh, for diagnostic access. So these novel tests have the potential to make a big difference in resource-limited settings, but aren't quite there yet at a programmatic level, would you say? I would think Expert Ultra has now got sufficient penetration that um, access should be good. Okay. Um, unfortunately, in many countries when expert was rolled out, it was first prioritized for MDR-TB suspects. People were still relying on smear microscopy. Mm -hmm. um, and children didn't have access to that. Um, so countries like Vietnam, until last year, for instance, if you were a child, even if a doctor were able, um, was able to collect a respiratory specimen, they couldn't get an expert test because expert tests were reserved for adult sputum. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's changing. Um, and in many parts of the world where people in the past said, we don't have TB meningitis at all, like some Pacific countries and some 
part some other Asian countries where people really do CSF tests. Now that expert ultra is available, there's been a, a whole series of case reports of um, previously missed TB meningitis cases now detected by expert ultra. Mm. And, and in well-resourced settings, are these tests making much of a difference? Because I suppose you really want to get a specimen with the mycobacterium in it if you possibly can. Yes, so it's, it's definitely making a difference in the time to diagnosis. We're right. still dependent on the culture uh, for us to do advanced and drug resistance testing and even yeah. sequencing. But the beauty of the, the ultra test is that you can get a result within two to three hours. So of the last three TB meningitis cases we diagnosed in Sydney, um, the ultra was the definitive test that directed treatment in Evans. Right, right, yeah. Okay, um, and can we touch on the epidemiology of uh, pediatric TB? I suppose there's, a, there's been a traditional understanding that TB is transmitted by adults, particularly from adults to adults, and then also from adults to children. So children have been, I think, often considered a dead-end host um, from an epidemiological perspective. Um, and I, I guess sometimes that means that people think that they're potentially less important, but, uh, well, from an epidemiological point of view, at least in terms of driving the epidemic, is that, is that still the case? Um, I, I think I have to admit that that is the case, <laughs> that um, children on the whole develop porcine bacillary disease, they rarely develop lung cavities, and we know that they don't have the same tasks of force, they don't cough as forcefully as adults do, and therefore rarely generate um, aerosol transmission. Um, but there are exceptions. Um, we've had examples of uh, infants with cavity disease that have infected their mothers and not the other way around, well described in South Africa. Um, and the other major exception are the adolescent children. Any child yeah. older than 10 years of age you know, essentially develop adult type disease. And in many countries, if you're not defined as an adult, which is usually above 15 years of age, um, you're not regarded as infectious and people won't even collect a sputum specimen, which is perfect, which is completely inappropriate in a child older than 10. Yeah. Um, so the, the other important thing is that you know, until about 2012 or so, the global TB control focus was almost exclusively on epidemic control. And as a public health physician or an epidemiologist, that's appropriate. <laughs> but the reality is we completely ignored the morbidity and the mortality of TB in childhood. And it's now recognized that TB is a top 10 cause of death in children under five. And that's a completely different motivation for why we should find and treat children. It's not to have epidemic impact, it's to save lives and yep. to prevent severe morbidity in children from TB meningitis, for instance, where they've got lifelong sequelae. I guess the other way that they could be important from an epidemiological perspective is that they give you a sense of the extent of recent transmission. But do you think that's useful or do you think it's the difficulties in diagnosing children just get in the way of, of using that as a way to understand how your epidemic's progressing? Um, it's definitely a mark of uncontrolled transmission when disease rates are high. Um, it's been a difficult angle to pursue with WHO to say children are important because they provide a marker of transmission because 
um, I suppose the the value of the signal is dependent on the accuracy of the diagnosis. Mm. And then everything boils back to how reliable can we detect childhood TB in these instances. And if we cannot do it with sufficient accuracy, then the signal is not reliable. Uh, so so it's, it is an argument, but I think by far the strongest argument we as pediatricians can pursue is that children die every day from an easily treatable and preventable disease. And yeah. the TB services have the responsibility to act on that. Yes. And we're talking now on the 8th of May 2020. So um, clearly at the moment, a major issue globally is the current COVID-19 pandemic which is making a huge difference to health outcomes in itself, but it's obviously having a huge impact on other, on the delivery of other health services, including TB care and TB care for vulnerable groups, including children. Um, how do you see that unfolding at the moment, Ben? I, I think COVID is clearly a challenge for all of us and it will remain a challenge for many months to come, unfortunately. Um, in TB endemic countries, um, I think we're only starting to see the impact, but um, the impact on TB control is likely to be quite severe. Um, and this is mainly because of restrictions on people's movement, um, presentation to healthcare services through those restrictions. Um, in many parts of the world, people are completely dependent on public transport are not, not available in, in times of lockdown. There's also the fear of presenting to healthcare systems. And we've seen that with Ebola outbreaks and other things that people stay away from healthcare um, if they believe that there's the risk of transmission in those settings. Um, and then there's the overburdened services that even if people present, they're often just not prioritized. Um, so th that applies to adults and children. Um, but I would think that there was a recent modeling paper that came out from the Stop TB Partnership that showed that we will see dramatic increases in TB case numbers and deaths, mainly through delayed TB diagnosis, um, which implies increased transmission, but also through increased drug-resistant TB, again, because of delayed drug-resistant TB um, presentation with increased transmission of drug-resistant TB, but also through treatment interruption and the acquisition of drug resistance in many patients who may be on suboptimal treatment or have interrupted treatment during this period. Um, for children, this is all relevant because the more transmission there is in communities because of delayed diagnosis in adults, the more exposure there would be. Children are usually exposed in households and with you know, social restrictions, um, people spend far more time in households with their potentially infectious parents and grandparents, which, um, which is a major concern. And then the delays in healthcare um, presentation and, and, and access issues will be um, no, an important issue to monitor. Just one other interesting uh, observation, which the adults may not be aware of, um, is that there's been quite a bit of talk about BCG as providing protection against COVID-19 and that, that healthcare workers could potentially derive protection. And there's ongoing studies looking at that also in Australia. Um, the big problem internationally is that when the news you know, uh, leaked out or um, got out through the Twitter sphere that BCG provides protection, 
that in many countries, um, adults and sometimes even healthcare, adult healthcare workers were using BCG stocks to vaccinate themselves. Right. And there's been major interruptions in child BCG vaccination programs through stockouts and through hoarding of BCG. Mm. And there's been formal calls from both the union and WHO for all TB endemic countries to ensure that newborn babies are prioritized for BCG provision mm. throughout this time. Yeah. And so you touched there as well on um, drug resistance in children. I imagine that must be a very difficult thing to diagnose, particularly again in resource limited settings. And you mentioned some diagnostics, which wouldn't necessarily give you a full picture of the antibiogram and uh, you might still be lacking some information in terms of um, in terms of what level of drug resistance is present. So how how do you go about making that di- that decision as to whether to treat a, a child for drug resistant or drug susceptible TB when you are working in a perhaps in a resource limited setting? Uh, I, I that's again I must admit that it it can be a, a challenge. Um, the good news is that we know that. Children with MDR-TB have excellent treatment outcomes. All the combined data that we have show that they've got treatment success rates above 90% and far better than adults with MDR-TB. And these are in, so this is in children with confirmed MDR-TB. Right. So um, there, there's value in pursuing the diagnosis and making treatment available. Um, obviously, Expert Ultra will give us a sense of possible rifampicin resistance but won't give us a, a, a comprehensive readout, which we can essentially only get from um, culture or whole genome sequencing following culture um, or phenotypic testing. Um, the, the big um, point to make here, though, is that most children with drug-resistant TB acquire the drug-resistant strain from their immediate environment. Yeah. Um, so in that instance, um, the drug resistance profile of the likely source case is highly informative. Um, in many countries, you are only allowed access to MDR treatment if you've got confirmed MDR-TB, which obviously fails children because if you don't have a culture, mm. which is unavailable in most countries, you cannot meet the prerequisite for treatment access. Yeah. So WHO have been pushing very hard um, that countries should also recognize presumptive MDR-TB as an indication for MDR treatment. Um, And there's been a long battle to get countries to recognize that children should have access to MDR treatment. And in most instances, this will be in kids with presumptive MDR-TB. And often this is not and it's fairly straightforward. We've had many instances where a child presented with TB was diagnosed with TB and started on drug um, on TB treatment, but drug susceptible TB treatment, while that same child's mother was on MDR TB um, treatment at the same clinic. But because mm. the child had culture negative disease, the child wasn't offered MDR treatment. So there are many of those obvious instances where children are not served well and where we can increase the access to MDR treatment for children by just applying basic epidemiological principles. And you're talking now, I suppose, about the younger children who who spend more time in the household, the pre-adolescent children. Yes. So so, um, 
the biggest dilemma and the greatest risk are in the children under five. Um, they are the kids who cannot, who struggle to produce um, respiratory specimens, especially sputum, um, and where the likely source is more likely to be then in the immediate environment. In older children um, who can produce sputum and kids older than 10, um, we just need to get the message out that these children should be as thoroughly investigated as any adult. And if they are expert or expert ultra positive indicating rifampicin resistance, they should get culture and further work up like any adult um, yeah. would have access. And so I guess the last thing to touch on is treatment then, and uh, we've led into that pretty smoothly. Uh, and that's another area that has been changing a lot recently. I mean, even in the last couple of years, there's been major change to international guidelines for TB treatment in general. And how do you see that impacting on children? I suppose, I suppose some of the longer term sequelae of treatment are some of the things you might be most worried about in children, and they were a very major issue with the traditional WHO recommendations for treatment. Um, so again, it's, a, it's an area where I think there's some good news. Uh, we have had in the last two to three years widespread rolled up, rollout of the um, child-friendly fixed-dose combination tablets, and it's also available in Australia now. In fact, Australia was the first developed country to have the um, global drug facility, the GDF um, formulation available because it was previously only made available to resource limited settings. So this is a combination tablet that includes inatrofampicin and pyrazinamide in what was thought to be the optimal ratio. It's a simple water dissolvable tablet, so you don't need a fridge. You just mm. need clean water to mix this and it's um, tolerated really well by children. And since we switched to using that as our frontline treatment, even at the Children's Hospital here in Sydney, um, we've had far less problems with treatment adherence in children. So these drugs are now available in most resource-limited settings. Um, in fact, yeah, I think that there's only a small minority of countries where this is not yet available. Um, so if we have diagnostic awareness, we should have access to um, treatment. Um, in many instances in children, there's a discussion around whether ethambutol should be given um, because the, the FDC only includes three drugs. Mm. But in children with porcy bacillary disease, ethambutol is rarely required. Um, because they've got such a low bacillary load, um, they are effectively treated with three drugs only. There's far less risk of acquiring drug resistance, which is essentially what ethambutol is trying to do, is to protect your frontline drugs better. Mm. Um, so we are happy to treat children just with those three drugs that's in a water-dissolvable tablet. Um, if there's concern about possible INH monoresistance, you can add ethambutol, but then it's preferable really to add a quinolone. Um, some of the questions in childhood TB is whether all children need six months of therapy. There are many children, if you diagnose them early, who's got a relatively mild disease where maybe four months of treatment would be sufficient and there's ongoing trials looking at um, treatment shortening. In children with compromised immune systems, mostly you know, HIV infected children with low CD4 counts, um, there would sometimes be an indication um, to prolong treatment out to nine months, just like we would do in adults on an individualized basis if there's um, considered to be poor treatment progress or high bacillary burden. Um, 
And then in MDR TV, until fairly recently, we didn't have any child-friendly options, but there's now child-friendly options available for nearly all second-line drugs. Um, and children can be effectively dosed uh, with most of these drugs, but Daquilin is the one problem where at the moment it's only available for children older than six, but still most children can access bedaquilin. But in children under six, uh, we need to um, identify bedaquilin replacements. There's ongoing studies to see if we can use bedaquilin from two years upwards, but those studies haven't reported this yet. Yeah. And you touched earlier in the interview about how devastating a disease TB can be for children and how children really have to be treated and, and need to be treated appropriately. Um, do you think a human rights lens and a human rights discourse is the best way to advocate for that? And how do you see, how do you see advocacy for childhood TB fitting in with advocacy for TB as a whole? I think it, it does present a bit of a dilemma. Um, on the whole, uh, in recent years, uh, both WHO and the union have been very accommodating of childhood TB. They are advocating for children far more than they've ever done before. Um, but what is lacking, I think, and what's different in childhood TB compared to adult TB is that in most countries, TB programs are very vertical. They are isolated from the rest of the TB, uh, from the health services. Children who are TB suspects don't present to the TB program. They present to the maternal and child health services. They will come to the clinic with a cough, with losing weight, with symptoms suggestive of meningitis. So it doesn't help that your TB nurse is trained in child TB and she doesn't see the child when he presents. You need your basic maternal and child health care services um, to be on board. And that's why the inclusion of broad programs like IMCI, uh, which is the Integrated Management of Childhood Illness Program, which focuses on diarrhea, pneumonia, common childhood illnesses, should include TB. That's where you need TB included to improve mm -hmm. um, access. Um, and that's also where the advocacy, I think, needs some you know, different emphasis, that there's, there, there's a need for a strong emphasis on um, child health in general and for TB to be seen as part of that child health package, the broader yeah. package. Um, and, and that ties in very nicely with the, you know, the SDG and the MDG goals for reducing under five mortality. Mm -hmm. We need advocacy in the space that addressing TB in TB endemic countries or addressing under five mortality in TB endemic countries requires us to include childhood TB in that package of care. Fantastic, Ben. So I've been talking to Ben Murray, Professor Ben Murray. He's a uh, researcher and paediatric physician at the Marie Bashir Institute and the Westmead Children's Hospital in Sydney. I'm James Trower, and this has been the TB Pod. Thanks very much, Ben, for speaking to us. Thanks, Jen.